Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. This week we have another fantastic interview for you guys to listen into. Brian Feroldi is an author, YouTuber and writer whose mission is to spread financial wellness. Brian is well known in investing circles, having previously written for The Motley Fool and boasting over 50,000 YouTube subscribers and almost 300,000 Twitter followers at the moment. A few weeks ago, Emmett sat down with Brian to chat about the origins of the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, why crashes and downturns are a normal part of the market, and Brian picks his five favourite stocks right now. Of course, if you listen to this interview in the My Wall Street app, you can also get some extra bonus content, including Brian's perspective on cryptocurrencies right now. Stock Club will return as normal next week, but for now, sit back and enjoy this great interview. Brian Feroldi, investor, financial educator, YouTuber and author. Welcome to Stock Club. Emmett, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Brian, you've written a wonderful book, which I read over the weekend called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything You Should Have Been Taught About Investing in School But Weren't. Now, before we dive into your book, tell me this, Brian, how did you get almost 300,000 Twitter followers? Like we're talking Kimi Kardashian level followership here. Uh, yeah, that, that is something that uh, surprised me just as it surprised you, uh, <laughs> saying that on there, I think in part it was right place, right time, right message. Uh, so I'm, I, I've been investing for just about 18 years now. And like any investor, I have lots of mental scars and problems that I've made in the past and mental models that I've adopted and learned over the ways. And I've just found that if you consistently share generously, you come across authentically, uh, that that information resonates uh, with people. And I started to take Twitter seriously um, in late 2019. And again, just sheer luck behind there. 2020 proved to be a massive tailwind because interest in stocks, financing, investing just skyrocketed. Tons of people were entering the market for the first time uh, ever. Lots of people turned to, to Twitter. And I just emerged as one of the people that seemed to have some experience and uh, make uh, complex topics relatively easy to understand and uh, digestible. But if you just consistently put out um, quality, um, quality, quality content authentically do that for a couple of years your, your followership will grow that's great brian you're being modest you really do pump out an, an endless stream of quality content and graphics and thoughtful uh comments about the market okay let's go back to a time when you were a twitter nobody mm -hmm. what was your path to writing a book where did your interest in the stock market come from yeah so let me just say that i am not 
naturally a writer. Like I am terrible. If we had a spelling contest, uh, I would lose. If we had a handwriting contest, I would lose. Like everything about uh, writing um, and English is is like foreign to me. My mind is built for math, uh, not uh, not English. So if you would have said to me, even like three years ago, you're going to be a writer, I'll write a book one day, I would have laughed at you, like how preposterous uh, that idea uh, was. But um, like many people, I was taught next to nothing about uh, the stock market, investing, or even money in general in my formal education. And by the way, I say that as someone that graduated with a business degree. I focused on business in college. And while we talked about things like the law around business and, and details of, uh, of accounting and marketing and legal structures, et cetera, we almost had nothing in there about what's the stock market? What's the S&P 500? Why, what's a retirement account? So all that information was completely lacking from my financial um, education. Uh, however, in 2004, I graduated from college and my dad, um, who is into um, a little bit into investing and him and his else is a, um, uh, an accountant, handed me a copy of a very popular book at the time, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, and that was like when that book was really uh, taking off. And I, for whatever reason, devoured it. I just, I just read that book in a matter of days because it was the first time in my life that some very important money concepts were ever mentioned to me. So things like, you're in business for yourself, the rich think about money differently, the rich minimize taxes, uh, the difference between assets and liabilities, right? Very basic money concepts, but for what I, I'd never heard them uh, before. And I have some qualms today with the, the book overall and some of the strategies. However, that was a gateway drug uh, to, to opening up this whole new world to me. And I, I just kicked off, it just kicked off a love affair with me learning everything I can about money, personal finance, uh, investing. And that caused me to just devour information about the, the stock market. I started putting money into the markets right away. I had no idea what I was doing at the start. And uh, just by continually learning the school of hard knocks, I gradually became more interested, more sophisticated about uh, investing. I became a, a member of the Motley Fool about 12 uh, years ago. My, that turbocharged my learning. And then about seven years ago, I was afforded the opportunity to become a, a writer uh, for them on the, on the uh, free side. And that's an opportunity that I still do to this day. Excellent. Well, I suspect our minds are wired in the same way, uh, God help you, I say, because I suppose I have a low level OCD and your book is constructed in the same way that I would have written it. It follows the same sequence, I suppose. Did you find that writing a book forced you to sort out and sequence your own thoughts? Very much so. That's Writing is an amazing tool for clarifying your, your thoughts about, about something. And um, it's important to say that, uh, again, I, I never thought of myself as an author. I never thought of myself as, as a writer. And there are, I don't know, thousands of books on the market about, about money and investing. I didn't write the book uh, because I thought, hey, I, here's one more, right? Here's yet another thing uh, out there. Uh, I wrote it because I myself was looking for a book that just explained the basics about how what the stock market is how how it works and just the the answered the in the, the questions that I had about investing 20 years ago that I couldn't get from any book and I, I read so many books about investing and there's so many wonderful books uh, out there everything about Warren Buffett uh, everything about Charlie Munger about uh, Seth Klarman about Peter Lynch they're, they're excellent excellent uh, uh, books but I still felt that there was a missing that there was a missing piece of education out there that is designed for people that 
want to know enough about the market to do well in their 401k, but not enough that they want to pick their own uh, stocks and just explain the basics. So that's why that's why I wrote the book in the first place, because I, it was essentially the book that I wish I could give to myself 20 years ago. Let's take an unusual uh, slant on the stock market, and it's something that I know you have a good insight to. Talk to me about the origins of Wall Street and the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 and even the NASDAQ. Yeah, those are terms that are thrown around all the time in the media and they're never explained. Like mm. the media would just say the Dow Jones was down 400 points today, assuming that people understand what the heck the Dow Jones is, yeah. what a point is, and is that is that good? Uh, is that bad? Uh, put, never never put it into context. Uh, however, if you go back and understand what how the Dow Jones was created, why it was created, it just makes so much more uh, sense. So investors have been, uh, there have been uh, publicly traded uh, stocks in companies uh, for, for hundreds of years, right? Uh, you need to raise capital from lots of, uh, of investors to, to fund uh, business operations, uh, things like banks, very expensive to get off the ground, railroads, very expensive to get off the ground, uh, ship uh, boat um, expenditures, uh, things to get off the ground. So raising money from investors to fund business potential is nothing is nothing new. This has been happening for hundreds uh, of years. And just uh, over 100 years ago, uh, just like today, there were publicly traded uh, companies that, that, that were out there. However, in 1896, the head of the Wall Street Journal, uh, his name was Charles Dow. And he was reporting uh, on what was happening in the stock market every day uh, to, to his readers, right? Some stocks would be up, uh, some stocks would, would be down. And for the next, geez, 80, 90 years, the dominant way that people got information about the stock market was through newspapers. Mm -hmm. However, he had a problem. He wanted to be able to summarize what happened in the stock market that day and kind of give readers a feel for what happened in the market. There wasn't an easy way to do that because some stocks were up, some stocks were, were down, but there's no way for him to give a quick explanation to his readers for here's what's happened. So he went to his business partner, uh, whose name was Edward Jones. So Charles Dow and Edward Jones, and they came up with a really elegant, simple solution. What they did was they added up the share price of 12 of the most popular stocks at the time, which were largely industrial companies, so big manufacturers. So they added up the share price. That information was readily available. And then they divided the total by 12. Now, when you add up 12 numbers and then divide by 12, that's called averaging. That's getting an average. So they gave birth to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and they calculated this number every single day. And suddenly investors could compare one day to the next, one week to the next, one year to, to the next. And it gave investors data that they could use to figure out what was the mood of the market on that particular day, uh, week, or year. Now, gradually, the Dow Jones Industrial Average caught on with investors and became more and more popular uh, over time. And a couple of decades later, a company called Standard & Poor's uh, decided to launch their own index to compete uh, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, they, they launched a few different versions of it. The version that we know today uh, uses 500 companies to track. That's diametrically opposed to the Dow. The Dow uses 30 companies today, more than the original 12, but the Dow still just uses 30 companies. And a lot of investors don't like using the Dow because the Dow still uses the dollar price of a share to figure out how much the index moved up or down. 
Well, that is not all that useful of a number, um, especially with today. The, the, more, uh, the more valuable metric is what's called market uh, capitalization. So S&P, the S&P 500, uses 500 companies, and it uses the market capitalization to figure out what is happening in the market um, uh, on any given day, week, or, or year. So that's how these terms came, came to mm. be. Uh, they were a way to summarize what happened in the market uh, for, for their investors. And now we have the Dow, Jones Industrial Average, still around today. The S&P 500, that's the more popular one, and for good reason. And finally, we have the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ is an electronic stock exchange that was given birth in the 1970s, but similar, similar idea. The NASDAQ composite summarizes what's happening with the stocks trading on that, and we get one number that gives us a summary of that. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So let's fast forward 45 years from the birth of the NASDAQ to now, May 2022, and it's a bit of a bloodbath out there at the moment. Let's talk for a moment about crashes and downturns. Talk to me about crashes and downturns, Brian, and what causes them and how a, an investor should behave. Yeah. So the, if you study market history, as you should, if you're going to put money in, in the market, you'll see that crashes and, and downturns are, are nothing nothing new. They, they actually occur on a regular basis. And what's funny about crashes and downturns is they, they naturally make sense. They, they made sense to me, right? I didn't understand why stocks went up. But it's not hard to figure out why stocks are going down, right? Today, uh, the stock market is in a bear market. Things are crashing. What's happening today? Inflation is back. Interest rates are rising. There's massive supply chain issues. There's a war going on in, in a world that may or may not escalate. There's so much uncertainty uh, right now. It makes total sense why investors in the market are, are crashing. And if you look back historically, some of the biggest crashes in the history of the S&P 500, they've been associated with big negative macro stuff, right? Mm. So the market crashed in February of 2020 to March mm. of 2020. COVID makes sense why the market crashed, right? 2008 uh, to 2007 to 2009, the great financial crisis, right? The housing bubble, people were getting kicked out of their houses. Banks were failing left and right. Makes sense why stocks were crashing. Uh, then there was 2000 and 2002, the hangover from the dot-com uh, uh, error. Uh, plus there was um, the September 11 attacks. Uh, there was the, the war that was uh, raging in, in um, Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Makes sense why stocks were crashing. 1980 to 82, right? The inflation rate was double digit. Interest rates were, were 20%. And other crashes were caused by Watergate, uh, in, uh, the Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, World War II, the Great Depression. So macro events, usually are associated with mass changes in investor psychology, which is associated with mass changes in prices or stock market um, um, crashes. The good thing for investors is that if you hold through those crashes, which is very painful, very, very painful uh, to do, the market historically has always recovered from crashes and has always gone on to deliver all-time highs again. So if you're going to invest in, 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 in markets, you have to be ready, willing, and able to hold through extreme periods of downturns. And boy, is that painful. Oh, amen, brother. Brian, in your book, you talk uh, about big mistakes. And I think it's in part 10 of your book, you have a few chapters dedicated to mistakes that an investor can make. What has your biggest 
investing mistake been? And and like, for example, talk to me about a potential multi-million dollar mistake that we all can avoid. There's lots of mistakes that, 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 that I've made, right? I mean, if you're going to invest, you're going to make mistakes, period. Everybody, I, I would say that we are, we are nat, we, we come out of the womb designed to be terrible mm. at investing. Like everybody is pre-programmed, <laughs> right? That way to, 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 to want to rush into markets when they're at their peaks, to sell when they're at uh, their, their bottoms. We're pre-programmed to avoid things that are going up, to buy things that are, that are going down. So many things about us, uh, about the way humans are programmed are perfectly wrong for wanting to, to making money um, in, in the market. So I've made tons of mistakes uh, my, myself. I've bought at, at highs. I've got caught up into, into, uh, into hype. I, I've used leverage on things that I thought were sure things that didn't turn out to be, uh, to be uh, sure things. However, when I think about the most costly mistakes that I've ever made, despite I've bought lots of things that have gone down, the biggest mistakes I've ever made aren't actually buying things that then went down, it's actually selling things that then significantly went up. So I, I, I wanted to, I was in a rush to book a profit uh, on something. And then I watched that stock multi-bag uh, from there. I, I sold Microsoft at $24. If that gives you a sense, right? It's yeah. in the what three hundreds today. Yeah. So I, I I missed out on a fifteen or so uh, bagger, roughly, from when I sold because I was in a rush to take a profit. I sold a, a, a high growth company for seven dollars. That the last I looked was three hundred dollars, right? Because I was in a rush uh, to take a profit. And this has happened again and again and again to me. So while I've made tons of mistakes, tons and tons of mistakes, the number one mistake that I've ever made has been selling something way too early. Brian, it's really interesting to me that you said that because I always say the greatest mistakes of my investing life have all been sales. And had I sold nothing ever, my Kager or Kager, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, my Kager would be considerably higher than it has been. So I absolutely believe uh, and agree with what you've said. It resonates with me. I just never sell. And I'm running a service in my Wall Street called Horizon, and I have bought stocks at or near all-time highs. And I know members are looking at me going, why didn't you sell? Why aren't you selling? And it's because not only my data, which is a 25 plus years of investing or anecdotes and, and real data from people like you and investing masters such as yourself. But the data out there says that never sell is the best approach to long-term investing returns. So I completely agree with what you've just said. I mean, if you put, if you just look at the math and just the way that the markets work in general, it's it's a minority of companies that drive the majority of the stock market returns, right? It's those few outliers, so it's extreme winners that just drive the markets over long periods of time. If you're index investing, that's invisible to you. All mm. you see is one number going up. If you dig into the details of the, of the markets uh, like we do, you see it's companies like Amazon, like Apple, like Microsoft, like Netflix, those like Home Depot, those extreme, extreme winners that really drive the market over time. And broadly speaking, if you have 10 stocks in your, in your portfolio and you sell 10 of them, and it's a great decision nine times out of 10, mm. it doesn't matter if that 10th one is selling Netflix early, if that 10th one is selling Amazon, on early if that 10th one is selling apple early so um i, I 
I like you have a reluctance, have a um, have developed a reluctance to sell, even when even when it seems like the overwhelming right thing to do. Uh, just because I know through my own history, being right about a sell decision, nine times out of ten, if I'm wrong, that one time out of ten, and I sell the next mega winner early, then all the decisions I got right won't matter. Mm. What are the go-to sources you use for your stock research? Boy, there's a, there's a lot of them there. Uh, the, the number one way I start is with the company itself. So if I'm researching a company from scratch, I always start on the company's investor relations website. Companies nowadays do make it relatively easy depending on the company. Uh, I like investor presentations. Some people don't like them. I like them because they give you the gist of the thesis in a relatively compressed period uh, of time. That's not the end of research. That's the start uh, of research. I always go to the 10K and I just start reading top to bottom. I go to the most recent earnings report and I start reading uh, top to bottom. I go to the most recent transfer uh, earnings calls. I go to uh, resources um, such as uh, a glass door to figure out employer ratings. I look at the proxy statement to figure out in inside ownership. Uh, but primary sources are always the best one. So SEC filings, uh, glass door ratings, um, and then earnings reports are where you can get 95% of the information about is this a good investment or not. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something earlier on, Brian, that for listeners on this side of the Atlantic is an alien term, and I'd appreciate if you might explain it, and that is 401k. I'm pretty certain that every US citizen knows very well what a 401k is, and I apologize to our US listeners for the forthcoming question, but what is a 401k? Talk to me about it. What's its history? You know, just talk to me a little bit about why, what its benefits are. Yeah, so so the history of the 401k, it's a weird term, isn't it? 401k. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was doing a project on my dad many years ago about his job, and he told me, oh, I have a 401k, and I was like, does that mean you make four hundred and one thousand dollars per year? Like I, like I don't a robot from Star Wars, I know. Right? I was like, wait, are we rich? Like, what's happening right now? Uh, no, it's nothing to do um, with that. And if you actually look at the, so what the four hundred one k is, is it's a taxed deferred investment plan that companies can offer to their employees that lets them invest money uh, in the markets, the stock market, the bond market. There's a number of ways you can invest, and your money grows tax free. Uh, as long as you play by the rules. And then after you turn, uh, you can't use the money until after you turn 59 and a half. And it, you, you only pay taxes after uh, that point. So it's a tax advantaged uh, vehicle for saving uh, in the United States. And what's funny is the 401k was invented by accident. It was completely an act. It's not like our government set out to say, we got to create this, this uh, new savings vehicle. Uh, what happened, there was in 1978, there were some tax changes that were pushed through in the tax code. And an eagle eye benefits attorney named Ted Banna, he actually read through the changes, specifically section 401 dash K uh, of the tax changes. And he realized that the language was vague enough that you could combine the tax benefit of profit sharing plans with the uh, contribution of thrift plans at the same time. The language was vague enough. So he convinced his own employer to, to create this brand new account called the 401k and it gradually caught on. Today, there's more than $7 trillion invested in 401ks and it's the number one way that investors in America save and pay for their retirement, all created by accident more than 40 years ago. So over here in Ireland, the equivalent of a 401k is generally a self-administered pension plan. Like it is a pension plan specifically for investing in listed instruments on the stock market. Is that right? Yes, it, it, it's it's you can invest in the stock market, the bond market, you can invest in cash. There's a couple of things that you mm. could invest in. But yeah, it, it's primarily a way to put money into the stock market. But you can't buy bricks and mortar. I don't believe so. 
only true wreaths, I presume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not R2D2's best friend. No. Not no, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about okay, here's one. We're going straight to the bullseye. Can you tell me, Brian, what are your five favorite mid or small cap stocks to buy today and hold forever? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great uh, question. And the funny thing about investing today is, while I like and own every single company that I'm about to stay, I'm pretty confident that these things are going to be horrendous, uh, potentially horrendous investments over the next month, two months, uh, three months. The market has been wild, wild over the last couple of months, and it seems like every company, every growth company that reports earnings is just getting taken to the woodshed uh, right now. So I want to caveat that and just saying I have no idea what these things are going to do over the next month, two months, three months, even even year. Uh, but long term, uh, I remain a shareholder and owner of, of these five businesses. Uh, so the first is Etsy. Etsy is a maker of handmade uh, products, um, primarily in the United States, but it's kind of like an alternative to, to, to Amazon. So People can go on there and get custom handmade uh, goods. And this company has been growing rapidly for years. Uh, side note, I buy all my gifts for my wife, my mother, for people that, that appreciate gifts on Etsy. It's like the first place I go to because you can get personalized uh, items. And, and I, I think that if, if you have somebody in your life that appreciates gifts, so like that's their love language, definitely check out Etsy. As a uh, as a consumer. Okay, can uh, I comment on each? By the way, Brian, I don't know what do. you're going to say. Obviously, Etsy is a favorite of mine too. Outstanding return on equity. Wonderful business. Completely has developed a niche for itself, and it is a part of the Horizon portfolio. A question I have, and this is from an Irishman to an American man, which is one of the problems with Etsy over here is delivery times are like horrendous. Hmm. What are delivery times like on average in the US? If you order a nice necklace, for example, when will it arrive? Depends on the seller, right? So that right. is totally up to the seller. That is one downside to the platform is you, you, you can't think, oh, I need a gift for my spouse tomorrow. Yeah. I'm going to go on Etsy. You have to think a week at least uh, mm. ahead of time. And often if you want to get expedited shipping, you have to pay an even higher premium on there. So that is absolutely a negative uh, uh, of the service. I don't know how the company fixes that either because they don't control production. They don't have the inventory uh, like an Amazon or anything does. So yes, shipping times, I would say vary between three days at the soonest to like two weeks at the latest. But most, most purchases that I make are at my house within a week. Great. Okay. What's number two? Number two is called Axon Enterprises. This company used to be called Taser uh, International. This is a company that is focused on the law enforcement market. So they make tasers. They make um, body cameras for police officers. Previously, when I first learned about this company, I said, pass. I have no interest in buying something that makes hardware, right? Hardware that, that sells it. Uh, even if it's consumable uh, hardware, I, I'm just not interested in that business at all. More recently, I've become a big believer in Axon because of the software component that really completes this company's ecosystem. So they have a number of software products out there that are adopted by police forces. And those products work in tandem with their cameras and with their with their tasers and more products are on the way that will actually be able to tell um, when a when a officer releases their gun from their, their holster, like that information will be automatically uh, recorded. While it's very hard to get a police force to adopt uh, the software, once they get on the network, boy, is it hard uh, to, to, to get 
profit. So this is a hardware company that has a software component to it. The best analogy I can make is that this is like the Apple of, of the law enforcement uh, uh, market. So relatively small company. I think it has a pretty wide moat. And uh, long term, I, I really am excited about this company's software component um, because the software, as software continues to grow and, and make up a higher percentage of revenue, uh, that should make the company's revenue more predictable and, and stabilize and even improve their margins. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. And in fact, the founder is a guy, as I'm sure you know, called Rick Smith and his brother, whose name is Tom Smith, founded a business called Rap Technologies, which is a perfect fit into Axon's portfolio, if you ask me. And the fact that brothers were running effectively competing companies concerned with non-lethal restraint devices struck me as a very interesting uh, kind of um, relationship. Now, as it happens, Tom Smith is no longer the CEO. I'm not sure if Rick Smith is still the CEO of Axon, but... He uh, is. Is he? Well, love the business. And it's one that I've had in my shortlist for pitching on Horizon for quite some time. And I think I'm going to double down on my research based on what you just said. What have you got in for number three? Okay, this one's a little bit spicy, but uh, but but stick with me on this. This is a small company, very small. It's become much much smaller recently. That's in the uh, healthcare industry called Semler uh, Scientific. Their oh ticker symbol is S M L R. What this company does is it's focused on helping doctors to diagnose peripheral artery disease, so blockages in the arms and and legs. So previously, historically, the way that you diagnose peripheral artery disease, which is a major problem, if you have if you have blood not flowing to your arms and legs, your risk of going to the hospital skyrockets, your risk of having a heart attack or stroke skyrockets. There isn't an easy, fast way, though, for doctors to tell if one of their patients has peripheral artery disease. So the current way that we uh, treat this is you have to sit down for a blood pressure uh, test and it requires a specialized tech to do it with specialized software. What Semler created was essentially a little clip that goes on the patient's finger and toes, kind of like an oxygen sensor, if, if you've ever had one of those put on your fingers when you're going mm -hmm. in for a doctor's appointment. So this actually, this little clip measures the flow of blood through each of your arteries. And it can be put on by someone that's not trained. And the entire test can be done in, in about five minutes. What I love about Semler is while the clip is like cool and the technology is cool. The way that this company monetizes this is through software, through creating reports uh, for, for doctors and, and monetizing it uh, through through that. So they make recurring fees by creating the reports based on what the clip uh, says. So this is a company with not gross margins over 90%, very small company that has been profitable, profitable and free cash flow positive for many, many, uh, many, many years. And in theory, this technology uh, is very disruptive and could continue continue to grow for a long period of time. And it's almost like a no brainer uh, for a healthcare uh, because the cost of finding this peripheral artery disease is like trivial in comparison to the potential cost savings from finding out if a patient actually has it. High inside ownership and a lot to like about the business. More recently, growth in this company has slowed considerably. I think that that's due in part to the resurgence of, of COVID. So this stock has been absolutely whacked uh, recently, but it's one that I have owned for, for many years. And while growth has slowed, I'm still bullish on the business long-term. Customer <sighs> concentration issues. Uh, definitely yeah. customer concentration issues to 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 watch out for here. That's just the nature of the business. That's the biggest risk that I, that I see. Uh, but if you like high profits um, and small cap with a, with a, a, a building out of a moat, it's one to check out.
Brian, I'm not kidding. You could have knocked me over with a feather when you said Semmer because I have actually pitched that in Horizon. <laughs> I haven't bought shares yet. But so far, Etsy, Green Tick, I've I've pitched it and bought it. Axon as on my shortlist and similar I've pitched it I haven't bought it and I think it is a wonderful business and I have watched it it has been really really maligned it's just been destroyed as of late but I agree I I don't think it's hit the floor just yet but the market is telling us it hasn't hit the right. floor but, right. but yeah I love as you said all the points you made are ones that I've I've honed in on myself and it is on my shortlist as well. Cool. What have you got for number four? Yeah, I've been wrong about somewhere so far. I was right. I was right about six months ago. Wrong so yeah, far. Yeah, uh, I haven't but, bought it myself, <laughs> but it's getting there. It's getting warm. Yeah. Uh, number four, I'll say the Trade Desk. The Trade Desk is a um, platform that helps um, enables programmatic uh, ad buying. So this is mm -hmm. a company that helps brands and marketing agencies to buy, to spend their money on ads more uh, effectively. Uh, this is a very high growth company in, a, in the fastest growing segment of the ad market. It's a founder-led business by a guy, Jeff Green, that's been in this industry for more than 20 years. Uh, despite that fact, uh, despite that fact, he's only in his mid 40s. I mean, he's like a ridiculously successful guy. If you like high margins, if you like high growth, if you like profits, uh, the Trade Desk has just been a phenomenal uh, executor and a fantastic uh, growth story. Very, very highly priced stock, even today after it's been uh, taken to the uh, to the woodshed. But management believes that essentially all advertising will be programmatic in the next 10 or, or 20 uh, years. And it's riding a lot of tailwinds to get there. So they are a leader. Uh, in their industry and great, great business. Mm. It is the stock of the month for my Wall Street this month. And I know that my colleagues, Rory, Mike, uh, Anne-Marie, uh, James, they're all fans. And I just haven't gone there fully yet. It's on my shortlist, but really very interested to see it made your shortlist of five. And what is your fifth, Brian? Another another spicy one. Um, so all all five of these companies are mm. profitable uh, on a gap basis. I'm I'm pretty sure might not be quarter to quarter. This one is not profitable on a gap basis. It is profitable on a non uh, gap basis, and that is Fiverr. Uh, ticker symbol F V R R. This is an online marketplace for finding uh, freelancers uh, to come on your on your platform. So this is a marketplace that connects people that have work with people that want to sell their skills to others. It's major competitor is is Upwork. Hmm. But a couple of years ago, Upwork kind of lost its way. Upwork was by far and away the leader in part due to M&A, not because of organic growth, but they were the leader. And Fiverr has been taking market share in the market away from uh, Upwork, although more recently Upwork has come back up. But when I look through uh, Fiverr, man, is there a lot to like. This is a company that is founder-led with high inside ownership, gross margins approaching 90%. It's spending crazy, like crazy on um, sales and marketing and stuff to, to, to grow the platform. But lots of optionality um, in the business. It's a profitable and adjusted uh, basis, a strong balance sheet. And I think the market is going to continue to move. Workers are going to continue to move more towards a freelancing model, potentially on a side hustle basis or even on a full time basis. I mean, I've been a freelancer now for seven years and I love the benefits that have on there. So I think Fiverr is one of the is one of the leaders in the in the industry. It's growing uh, rapidly. And uh, it's one that I think, despite being down huge, like all of these basically stocks are. It's one that I've owned for a long time and can continue to see myself doing so. Hey, let's narrow the beam with then. So Etsy, Axon, Semler, the Trade Desk, and Fiverr. If you were foolish enough to only own one stock for the rest of your days, which would you choose? Uh, boy, is that tricky. If I had to say one, I guess I would say 
axon uh, because I think of the five, it probably has the widest, widest moat. Um, yeah, I guess I'll say axon. Nice. So guys, if you're not listening to this interview in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. However, if you want to listen to the rest of this chat with Brian and find out what his thoughts are on cryptocurrencies as investments, jump on over to the My Wall Street app now and you can listen to the rest of this interview for free, as well as find all of our extended past episodes of Stock Club. Thanks again to Brian for joining us on Stock Club and his book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything You Should Have Been Taught About Investing in School But Weren't is available now on Amazon and anywhere else that you get your books. I'd really, really recommend checking that out. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, or if there's any guests that you'd like us to feature in future episodes of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com, that's P-O-G at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying Stock Club, please make sure to tell your friends about us and make sure to leave a rating or a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks again to Brian, and thanks to you for joining us today. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.